coming up, the king of the liars is furious about fake news. It's phony stuff. It didn't happen. Sick people, they put that crap together. Plus, the NHS is in chaos. Maybe it isn't in chaos, but if it is, it's definitely your fault. But don't worry, because Jeremy Corbyn is here to make things clear. We're not ready to free movement to the EU as a point of principle, but I don't want to be misinterpreted, nor do we rule it out. Hello, Paul Osborne here to start 2017. A new start, a clean slate, or the year in which all the terrible things that happened in 2016 will return to make our lives a tiny bit more awful than they already are. Happy New Year, by the way. Let's start, as much as we may not want to, in the United States, because around a week from now, Donald Trump will place his hand on a Bible and, assuming it doesn't burst into flames or four horsemen of the apocalypse ride into Washington, D.C., he will be sworn in as the 45th president of the United States. And this week, Donald Trump staged a news conference finally. Now, ostensibly, this was to parade all of the measures he's taking to avoid allegations of impropriety in his business affairs. Of course, it was a whole different type of impropriety that dominated reporters' questions, some of which the president-elect was not absolutely keen to answer. Not you. Not you. Can you give us a chance? Your organization You are attacking our news organization. Your organization Can you give us a chance to ask a question, sir? Go ahead. Sir, can you state... Quiet. Mr. President-elect... Don't be... No, I'm not going to give you a question. Can I'm you, not going to give you a can question. You st- can you stay categorical? You are fake news. That's right. Donald Trump, the king of fake news, who ascended his orange-hued throne on a carpet of lies, is pissed off about fake news. Which is strange, as last year he couldn't stop making stuff up. When the World Trade Center came tumbling down, and I watched in Jersey City, New Jersey, where thousands and thousands of people were cheering... ISIS is honoring President Obama. He is the founder of ISIS. He's the founder of ISIS, okay? He's the founder. He founded ISIS. When Mexico sends its people, they're not sending their best. They're bringing drugs, they're bringing crime, they're rapists, and some, I assume, are good people. So as Donald Trump prepares to become the most powerful man on earth, well, the second most powerful after Vladimir Putin, obviously, he does so facing claims that Russia has any amount of compromising information about him, including some really, really strange things that allegedly unfolded in a hotel bedroom. Though where those claims are concerned, silence is golden. Joining me as bemused as the rest of us is Robert Meakin. Uh, Robert, let's be clear. Those allegations that, that emerged a few days ago are unfounded. There's no concrete evidence to support them. And you can understand why Donald Trump would be so angry about that being made public, were it not for the fact that who brought us into this awful, nightmarish world. Donald Trump, he dragged us to the place where CNN can report on the most outlandish, idiotic allegations and have them taken semi-seriously because, you know, where Donald Trump is concerned, it is hard to know what would be genuinely impossible. Yeah, as you say, he's he's set this news agenda, which might be a polite way of describing it to 
presently. He, I mean, only only last year, as we know, they the, the Trump team were frequently you know, putting this stuff out. I remember the bizarre one regarding Ted Cruz's father had been in cahoots with Lee Harvey Oswald on the day of uh, JFK's assassination. So it is fair to say that uh, Trump Trump has form in this regard. Uh, Trump said this week as well, if. Let's say Putin did hack the election. Let's say Putin did release all of that stuff from from Hillary Clinton's campaign because he wanted to get close to to me. That makes me an asset to America, not a liability. And can you imagine any other politician boasting and saying the good news for you people of America is that I am widely seen in Russia as Moscow's useful idiot? We're going to have to get used to how extraordinary things are going to be over these coming weeks months years if he if he lasts that long because what we've understood in terms of the way a president or any world leader behaves essentially uh, beforehand and what we've commented on has been torn to pieces by Donald Trump. It's a completely different ball game now, the way he responds. This is a man who goes on Twitter, sort of berating people for writing slogans in capital letters. This is a man who has the most surreal press conferences. We are playing by very different rules here. And every week we're going to be thinking, surely he's gone too far this time. I'm sure we're going to be having that conversation frequently. And I think it's just going to take us time to get used to it. Maybe we will never get used to it. I mean, we both were born around the time time of, say, something like Watergate, a big political scandal of the time. Now we seem to be in this sort of era where there seems to be a big, potentially career-ending political scandal every week. And Donald Trump is very much at the forefront of that. I have a conspiracy theory about the timing of Donald Trump's news conference, which isn't related to these these allegations of compromising Russian material. Trump scheduled this news conference for Wednesday, the same day that his nominee for Secretary of State, Rex Tillerson, was due to have his Senate confirmation hearing. Now, those Senate confirmation hearings are the only real chance that the Democrats have to sort of shred the credibility of some of these more controversial cabinet choices, because they can't stop them. They don't have the numbers to stop these things going through. And so all they can do is just sort of damage their credibility by highlighting all of the odd events, odd questions that surround them. Of course, nobody talked about Rex Tillerson's confirmation hearing because all they talked about was the big fireworks at the Donald Trump news conference. I somehow doubt whether there's that much sort of strategy in, in, what, in what Trump is doing. I think Trump is a sort of bull in a china shop and when he's attacked, he only knows one way and that is to go forward and go at his enemies in the way he most spectacularly did this week. As you say, the people in the Trump administration <laughs> continue to be largely ignored stroke unknown because there's really not that much interest in them. All the interest is inevitably on the man himself and how the hell this is going to play out in, over the next couple of weeks as we approach his inauguration. I mean, this is all before the inauguration happens. Yes. Trump is apparently set to announce within days of taking over that he wants to move the US embassy in Israel to Jerusalem. That will prompt protests in any number of countries in the Middle East. He has messed up US relations with China over Taiwan to the point that China's sent a warship to the Taiwan Strait a few days ago. Moscow is exploiting the vacuum in Syria to keep its friendly dictator in place and killing thousands of civilians along the way. All this before Donald Trump is sworn in. And from next week, every one of those problems and every other problem that arises will land on Donald Trump's 
desk. I am telling you, it is time to stock up on tinned goods. I mean, there was the sort of the, the moderate theory that, oh, when he becomes president, of course, he'll be overwhelmed by the brief, the magnitude of it, and we'll get a far more... Um, Calm, a far more contrite Donald Trump. That obviously isn't going to happen. We're already seeing the, the reality television star in full flow. He is not going to change. God only knows what's in store. The presidency, as I say, is not going to change Donald Trump. Donald Trump is quite clearly going to change the presidency. As we record uh, this podcast, pictures are now emerging of uh, a visitor to Trump Tower. And yes, it's friendly French fascist Marine Le Pen, leader of the National Front and possible French president by the middle of this year. So that's nice, isn't it? Well, what with the world collapsing into a nightmarish hell, thank God things here at home are a lot less stressful. Yeah. You see, you'd expect to see the Red Cross busy in Aleppo rather than Aldershot, and whether its intervention in the health service is fair or not, it is fairly humiliating to have an international humanitarian organisation declare a crisis in Britain's health service. The Prime Minister, it is fair to say, does not agree. We've all seen humanitarian crises around the world, and to use that description of a national health service, which which last year saw two and a half million more people treated in an accident and emergency than six years ago, was irresponsible and overblown. Now, the core promise in the NHS is that if you turn up at A&E, you will be seen within four hours, though that is a target many hospitals are no longer capable of meeting. But according to the Health Secretary, Jeremy Hunt, That's right, by the way. Jeremy Hunt is still inexplicably the health secretary. The reason that hospitals are in so much trouble is because of all these bloody ill people lying around on trolleys and corridors being ill. Since it was announced in 2000, there are nearly 9 million more visits to our A&Es, up to 30% of whom NHS England estimate do not need to be there. And the tide is continuing to rise. So if we are going to protect our four-hour standard... We need to be clear it is a promise to sort out all urgent health problems within four hours, but not all health problems, however minor. Uh, Robert, I always think you can tell the extent of any crisis in the National Health Service by whether or not Jeremy Hunt is wearing his NHS lapel pin on his suit, and he hasn't taken it off this week. So apparently one in three trips to A&E are for reasons that don't warrant a visit to casualty, and that's our fault. Though it's also arguable that the reason so many people are going to emergency units with non-emergencies is because they've been told to wait four weeks to see their GPs. I'm conscious at the same time how, as we well know, how the NHS NHS can be used as a political football very cynically by both mainstream sides of the political argument in Britain. But there is no doubting that the current state of affairs is is nowhere near fit for purpose. Hunt is clearly playing a fairly disingenuous game. The Prime Minister had no real convincing explanation this week. And the depressing thing, having now witnessed this debate for years and years is that it, we, always, we do seem to just be going around in circles and coming back to the, the same problems, that essentially that the, the NHS just is not equipped to deal with the demand in this country, particularly at this most challenging time of year. Now, the NHS has always been 
the Achilles heel of the Tory party. Though, of course, given the current state of the NHS, they'd have to wait months to have their heel looked at. Fundamentally, there are a large group of people who just don't quite trust the Tories with the NHS in the same way that there are a lot of people who just don't quite trust Labour with the economy. So a situation like this just plays into an existing perception that lots of people have about the Tories, that, well, they don't really care about the NHS, do they? They're not really bothered about it. And that politically can be massively damaging. David Cameron tried to present himself very much as a pro-NHS prime minister. Again, even though he stressed you know, how much his own family had used the NHS at you know, crucial times in their lives, it's never, it's never seemed credible in the eyes of the electorate. Not not that it's lost them general elections overall, of course, we should stress. But the NHS and the Conservatives has long been a toxic combination. And I can't believe it will ever be anything different. No, I mean, the NHS very rarely ends up being a massive issue in, in general elections. It always sort of lurks in the background. But it is a charge that Labour is always ready to make. Is oh, well, you Tories, you don't care about the NHS. Now, you can argue the current situation is just what happens in winter and is not really a crisis. But when lots of people have individual stories about being told they have to wait nearly a month to get a 10-minute appointment with their GP or hanging around in A&E for six or seven hours, regardless of how serious the medical establishment may view their complaint, or having elderly relatives struggling to get the care that they need at home and, and being rushed into hospital when a, a minor problem becomes an emergency. If lots of people have those kind of stories, it starts to feel like a crisis at the grassroots and it starts to become politically damaging. The NHS only becomes a political issue and it doesn't work properly. As you said earlier, Jeremy Hunt is remarkable how long he survived in what is admittedly a pretty thankless job in, in, in the political scheme of things. But how Hunt has managed to cling on for so long, having had such a poisonous relationship with the medical establishment is beyond me. And I, I, I think um, it, and Theresa May won't want to be seen to be reacting right now to and, and moving him to another post. She won't want to, to. She's a very cautious politician instinctively. But you would think at some point that a fresh face, however difficult it is for any conservative politician uh, to, to work with the NHS, you would think a fresh face would be a good idea sooner rather than later. Well, let's briefly pop into Brexit corner. Don't worry, not for too long. Uh, now, we already knew that we'd had enough of experts. And it seems that what we want in their place is blind optimists, judging by the Leave lobby's reaction to the resignation of Britain's ambassador to the EU. So Ivan Rogers' warnings of muddled thinking and a lack of any coherent strategy for what is the most important issue facing Britain's government led Ian Duncan Smith to accuse him of getting ideas above his station. This is admittedly a little ironic, coming from a man whose brief period as Conservative Party leader was so successful that his own MPs knifed him in the back before he could lead them to a spectacular defeat. Now, Robert, next week, Theresa May is apparently going to set out an optimistic case for Brexit. I think I already know what the answer to this is, but is this the point where she will produce, like a rabbit from a hat, a detailed plan? No, not at all. Well, I'm glad I asked. Yeah, it's um, talking of thankless tasks. I think being the prime minister dealing with Brexit is the top of the tree of thankless tasks in this country, at least presently. No, they're, they're, they're fumbling around trying to construct a, a convincing narrative of, of how they're going to carve through this mess. Her instincts are pretty cautious. 
she she would rather sort of fudge things and have what they what is uh, you know generally called a soft Brexit, but she knows she can't get away with that because of the, the, what the, the demands of her party and, of course, a huge section of the, the electorate in Britain. Well, of course, a well-organised opposition could make mincemeat of a government that's floundering on Brexit and in the middle of an NHS crisis. So what better time for the big Jeremy Corbyn relaunch? And let me tell you, it went like a dream. The opposition leader went to the leave-voting Labour target of Peterborough to spread the message that his party gets the public concern on immigration. Mr Corbyn would tell them that Labour was not wedded to the idea of free movement – The only problem is the Labour spinners who busily told all the reporters that that's what he was going to say didn't appear to have precisely explained it to Mr Corbyn. We're not wedded to free movement to the EU as a point of principle, but I don't want to be misinterpreted, nor do we rule it out. So, uh, to clarify, Robert, Jeremy Corbyn no longer supports uncontrolled immigration unless he does support it, which he might do. Yeah. Um, I know there, there was a mischievous suggestion that one Diane Abbott, who's obviously a long-time close colleague of, uh, of Corbyn's, was, was involved in watering down the message at the 11th hour. The message was certainly watered down by someone because I, mean, I, I was watching it all and and while the, uh, the media commentators were saying, well, this is it, you're, you know, this is you finally taking a strong stance on the immigration issue, a couple of sentences from Corbyn, it became very, very convoluted what he really meant. There was some sort of waffle at one point about sort of, uh, regarding jobs and how it, it, they should be sort of initially locally sourced, all this sort of very worthy sounding stuff, but it would have left most normal human beings thinking, well, what are you talking about? Are you really planning to do anything about the current immigration issue? It was, say, very unclear. I get the feeling that what happened here is that over Christmas, his advisers said, look, we need to sound a bit tougher on immigration. He didn't specifically say no to that. They then started spinning it oh, there's going to be a big change, it's going to be a relaunch, which prompted Corbyn to think, well, I'm not sure I ever agreed to that. Now, this is the kind of thing you resolve in the car on the way to the speech that you're going to give. You don't resolve it in front of the cameras or while being interviewed, and you don't give a confusing answer again and again and again throughout the entire day. And what's so depressing about this is that actually... Jeremy Corbyn's got better at things like Prime Minister's questions. He, he, he's better at holding Theresa May to account. He's better at focusing on specific topics. But things like this just add weight to that idea that he doesn't have the political nous to be the leader of the opposition. No, and as, as we said before, we talked about Trump, that we are, we are living this rather bizarre new political age, obviously across the Atlantic. In this country, the Labour Party. I mean, it's an incredible state of affairs, the Labour Party, what, what's happened over the last 18 months or so. And the message is constantly convoluted. At the end of the day, you've got a, a deputy leader of the Labour Party who admitted only the other day that he has no involvement in sort of general discussions about party strategy. You know, it's it, it all over. Over the place, this remarkable coup that was Jeremy Corbyn taking over the, taking over the Labour Party has brought brought with it all manner 
of contradictions and confusion. And yet, in terms of a, a slick media operation, they're a long, long way from that. One David Prescott, John Prescott's uh, son, now is uh, his, uh, his senior media advisor and speechwriter. Well, I, to be honest, I don't envy him, whatever they get, he's getting paid. Before we go, let's just briefly return to the impending arrival of President Trump. And we've been hearing for the last few weeks of the problems that organisers of his Inauguration Day events are having in getting anybody to turn up and perform at them. Uh, dancers having their arms rather forcibly twisted. But I have good news. I hear that America's foremost Bruce Springsteen tribute band <laughs> will be performing at, on Inauguration Day. I mean, come on. Guests don't get better. Better than that. On, on the celebrity front, things—it's it, it, thin ground. It would be fair to say. I, I, I actually had the the fortune of having to look into who you know who, which celebrities were backing him during the U.S. election, and uh, I think I'm, I'm, I'm guessing Hulk Hogan might be there. Uh, Mike Tyson would be another. People who've had legal difficulties, shall we say? Leg, legal, legal difficulties, yes. Uh, Clint Eastwood. I think was identified as a, as a potential uh, supporter. Clint Eastwood last seen talking to an empty chair on a stage. Yes, he may he may he may be past his best. Yeah, it, it, might, it might be fair to argue. So no, it's I I think we there was talk of a, a former X Factor contestant, and I, I believe also the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. I think we can look forward to that on the day. I mean, it, that, in all honesty, could be the highlight. It could be the last highlight, actually, if you think about it, because who knows? We may well all be irradiated by Donald Trump's itchy trigger finger before we even had time to seal our Valentine's Day card. Well, let's enjoy it. Let's enjoy the moment. I think that's the way to go forward. Let's let's enjoy it while we can. I, I, I look forward to seeing the Bruce Springsteen tribute band. It, I just didn't necessarily think it might be the last gig I ever saw. <laughs> A happy, cheerful and optimistic start to 2017. Why not? Send your last requests to us on Twitter at Paul Osborne. And, and if we're still alive in a couple of weeks' time, we could read some of them out. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening and goodbye. <laughs>